0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. So let's start with our traditional Torah study bracha. Melacha Olam Asher B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'Asok Torah. Okay, so this year, Parshat Pinchas. In 5783 or 2023 on the Gregorian calendar is the first Shabbat of the three weeks of admonition. Also called Ben HaMitzarim, the three weeks is translated as uh, Ben HaMitzarim. Between the Straits is the literal translation. And in this parasha, it picks up with an incident that actually happened in last week's parasha. In Numbers 25, where Pinchas skewered two people copulating in the open... A disgusting, a disgusting wanton and brazen act that needed expiation. Now the rabbis discussed this event alone at great length and Pinchas is eventually compared to Eliyahu and the zeal that Eliyahu had for Hashem at the altar where he proved Hashem was the one true God with the pagan worshipers of Baal but more on that shortly. Now the Torah portion itself in summary contains Pinchas as Aharon's grandson, being rewarded in an act of exuberance, killing Zimri of the tribe of Shimon, a leader who was being a sexual exhibitionist with a Midianite princess, a temptress sent by Balak at the behest of Bilam from last week. Now, Hashem gives Pinchas a covenant of peace. And in the first few verses in this parasha, you can see in a traditional Torah scroll that the letter Vav in the phrase Brit Shalom is In the Vav of Shalom, specifically, there is a break in it. Uh, now, you'll find this in Numbers 25, verse 10, 11, or 12. And the... Let me find it for you specifically, but... Uh, let me just one moment. So, uh, this is to draw your attention. The break in the Vav is to draw your attention to the idea that it came at a great price. Also, some opinions say... It is deficient. The vav is deficient. It's broken because he used violence to attain it. I mean, in a really simplistic nature or fashion, you could say the break in the vav should remind you of the spear that broke the bodies of the transgressors. Okay, so I found the verse, and it is in verse twelve. It says, "Lachen <laughs> emo hineni no ten lo." Et briti shalom. And here I give, I am more. Oh, therefore say, I hereby give him my covenant of peace. And that is Hashem speaking to Moshe to tell Pinchas, I believe. All right, so that was, now the whole parashah can be found between Numbers chapter 25, verse 10 through 20. Let's see through chapter 30 verse 1 and the Haftarah is going to be from well we'll get into that in a second but it'll be from 1st Kings and I'll differentiate why we're not reading it from 1st Kings this year but rather from Jeremiah 1 and we'll get into both of those shortly so I think that since the Bob is the letter of man it's it has the value six in gematria and six is the day that man was created the sixth day in genesis chapter one that it is a reminder that we must be broken ourselves to have peace or shalom with hashem and that it does cost us greatly to attain this peace but in the end we end up in covenant with hashem also it could be symbolic and prophetic that the messiah would have to be broken himself in order to return a covenant of peace to mankind and reconnect them, mankind, us, albeit us, uh, with Hashem. Also, he is granted the priesthood, uh, Pinchas, that is. Now, uh, Pinchas uh, is spelled Pei-Nun, no, sorry, Pei-Yud-Nun-Chet-Samech. In case you were wondering, it's kind of a unique name, and other than the torah it's rare to hear it i don't know many israelis or jewish people that are named Pinchas, but uh, it it is a hebrew name that is uh, somewhat well known and uh, because he was you know basically a, a hero of israel Now, uh, further on in the Torah portion, the census is taken, and we end up with 601,730 men between the ages of 20 to 60. Now, Moshe hears from God that there is to be a lottery for the tribes to receive the portions of of land in Israel as they prepare to cross in the coming chapters. Now, they don't cross, actually, until the book of Joshua, but this is the preparation time. Then we hear about a unique story with a man named Selophachad, who has five girls and no boys, and there is a special provision called a hukat mishpat, meaning a decree of judgment, basically, uh, because mishpat is a is a judgment and hukat is a decree. Usually, uh, the the type of decree or judgment or law, if you want to say, in the Torah. Uh, chukat, or chukim, the chukim are all of the things that really lack a deep explanation, or they're so deep, they've been lost to tradition or history, such as kosher, such as mixing wool and linen, um, those are two big ones that are that fall under the chukim, and there are decrees from Hashem that we don't really completely know why. Uh, the red heifer, which we talked about last week, the para aduma, so Um, anyway the uh, let's see so the daughters of Tzolofahad let me get back to that Uh, so Tzolofahad has no sons and there's a special provision made by Moshe for them to hold on to their rightful inheritance and not get lost in their husband's tribal inheritance because if their land went to another tribe or went to their husband's family um, then they would lose the rights to it just because they were female. Now, this is a, there is a great insight to petitioning God when He God tests us at times to see what kind of positive chutzpah we have to come to Him and wrestle out a machloket, an issue, a controversy, and that's what Zalofachad and his girls do. They come to Moshe and they say, "Hey, this isn't fair. We need to have some sort of provision for our for our rights to the land." Now finally, Moshe confirms Yehoshua will be their leader next and then concludes with a list of the offerings and additional offerings called the Musaf offerings. And this is where we get the name for the additional prayer services on Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, which is the new moon, and all the holidays. Also, this parasha contains the special special passage we read 11 times per year on Rosh Chodesh, with the exception being what month? Well, what month is special on Rosh Chodesh where we might not read the normal Rosh Chodesh readings? It is unique and we have a major service. So we have a special holiday set of readings on the Rosh Chodesh I'm referring to. Are you finished guessing? All right. Well, if you guess Rosh Hashanah in Tishri, then you are correct. Okay, so the first Haftarah I'll summarize is the one in First Kings. Now, this parasha covers numbers 25, 10 to chapter 31, I mean thirty, verse 1, which I said a little bit ago. And what's also interesting about this week is that it is the first in a 10-week series of special Haftarah readings. For all intents and purposes, the yearly cycle of Haftarah portions that specifically connect to the Torah portion are over at this point in the year. Sorry, I should have done a special announcement and farewell to our weekly connection to the Torah portion last week. But don't be too sad. This week we will talk about this special week going into the three weeks of admonition that are followed by seven weeks of consolation. Now this week's parashah, Pinchas, sometimes falls prior to the 17th of Tammuz, which happens to be uh, starting on Wednesday night of this week in 5783. And when it does, the Haftarah is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46 to chapter 19, verse 21. But the season of the three weeks of admonition, Ben HaMetzarim, leading up to Tisha B'Av, overtakes the normal weekly Haftarah this year in 5783 because Parashat Pinchas falls after the 17th of Tammuz. Now, if this is hard to grasp, just grab a calendar, a Jewish calendar, and you'll see what I mean. That will help. Okay, so I'm also going to cover the Haftarah from Jeremiah chapter 1-1 to chapter 2-3. This story is a part of a series of events in Eliyahu's career. Oh, I take it back. Sorry, that's confusing. So the Parashah that I'm going to first cover is the one that traditionally is read with Pinchas if Parashat Pinchas falls the week before the 17th of Tammuz. Then I will also cover the Haftarah that we will actually be reading in the synagogues this week, which is Jeremiah one, 1 to 2.3. Now, back to the normal portion, which is 1 Kings. This story is a part of a series of events in Eliyahu's career in the mid-9th century BCE. So between the years 900 BCE to 800 BCE, now 100 to 0, Year one hundred BCE to zero is the first century. So nine hundred to eight hundred would be the eighth century. Sorry, the ninth century BCE. Now this even is about a bizarre. This event is about a bizarre contest on Mount Carmel, which is located near. Uh, oh, I don't have the geography on that, but it's at Mount Carmel, which you can look up on a map. Eliyahu, which I will use his Hebrew name, shows God is the only God, and then kills the prophets of Baal. Now the king at that time is named Ahav or Ahab, and his wife is the famous or infamous Jezebel, which is a Phoenician who is a Phoenician woman and gets really angry about this incident where Eliahu kills all of the worshipers and the leaders of Baal. Now Jezebel, as many people know, was an idolater and she brought idolatry into the worship of Israel, or Israel's worship of God. Now Eliyahu has to abruptly leave after he kills these guys and goes on the run to escape being murdered by them. And he comes to Mount Horeb. Now, uh, the connection with the Torah portion is about both Pinchas and Eliyahu's passion and intensity and fearlessness and boldness to combat idol worship, I-D-O-L, and pagan practice. Now, there is a word in Hebrew, Kana, Kof, Nun, Aleph. That is the root word, which means jealousy, which appears in both Torah and Haftarah portions. Now this is a link from Pinchas to Eliyahu, and that they share the same anointing or zeal for Hashem. Now Pinchas wins God's approval for killing the gross idolaters that were in public fornicating and pagan worship at Baal Peor in the book of Numbers. Hashem says, Pinchas son of Eliezer. Son of Aaron, Aharon the Cohen, has turned back my wrath from B'nai Israel by displaying among them his passion for me. Now, in this pas- uh, in passage, Numbers twenty-five, eleven, the Hebrew is bekano, bekano et kinati, so that I did not wipe out the Israelite people in my passion, and the word for passion in Hebrew is bekinati. That, again, that's Numbers 25, verse 11. Now, this decision Pinchas made showed he was qualified for leadership. Now, in the Haftarah, Eliyahu is at Horeb, and he says in 1 Kings 19, verses 10, and then again in 14, I was moved by zeal for the Lord. Kano la Adonai. Now, the first time he is asked by the word of the Lord. All right, now, hear this. The first time he's asked... By the word of the Lord. It says the word of the Lord appeared to him. Alright. So let me go to that. uh, Reading. That Hebrew for the Haftarah. And it's not going to be the right place. Because it took me to Jeremiah 1. So... Oh and there is a connection interestingly. Between Jeremiah and Pinchas. So maybe we'll add that at the end. Alright. But... um, in that passage in first kings 19 verses 10 and then um in, in that then first sorry in that chapter 19 first kings 19 verse 10 the word of the lord devar adonai shows up in to meet Eliyahu now what is the word of lord and what is the word of the lord and is it different from purely the yod-he-vav-he name that appears next in hebrew in verse 14. So let's go to the New Testament in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, it says, Bereshit was the Word. Well, the Word of who? The Word of the Lord, Adonai. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, it came out of his mouth. So it was literally the essence, the, 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 the sheer power of God coming out of God's mouth. Now, let me stop for a moment and give two examples I've seen over the years of something I want to explain. Do you own a famous painting? Have you been to a museum and seen a famous work of art of any kind? Now, if you see one and you don't know the name, you may say of this work of art, you don't know the title of it, hey, that's a Da Vinci or that's a Picasso. Now, is that painting literally the artist? No, it's a creation of the artist. Uh, it, it, it's his expression, his or her expression, his or her handiwork. Now, if I tell you the famous sculpture of David, king david that is from the bible happens to be a michelangelo it's a very famous sculpture you can look it up uh, and say oh that's a michelangelo you know that it is his work it's one of his creations he owned it he made it he produced it okay so it's not literally him but it's an extension of him here's another slight variation and there's a point to why i'm saying this here's another slight variation on something that is like the original in the likeness of its original source, but it's not literally the original. If you watch a film with, say, a famous actor, and that actor shows up on the screen, you may say, hey, there's so-and-so, there's Robert Duvall, or Gal Gadot, but is that actor or actress really that image on the screen, or is it a projection from the film through the light onto the screen? And you know, there's a really deeper thing there with the light being the conveyor of the image of the reality, but the reality is not on the screen. It's a projection. Uh, it's like you time traveled, right? Back into time when the film was actually made, but it's conveyed through light, which, you know, there's a spiritual connection there. So, anyway, I bring these up, these points up. So, here's my take on the Trinity. It seems research shows it is a pagan doctrine and most jews you talk to would say this makes the acceptance of i'll say it in christian language for a moment accepting jesus as the messiah is very unpalatable when you tie it to this idea of the trinity because yeshua is presented as being god himself and then you add the holy spirit as this three-in-one god idea and there's an element of truth to it yes but it has been so gentilized and paganized and even weaponized that it has no connection to the connection to the original Jewish idea of who the messiah was going to be and the role of the holy spirit just to be clear i believe yeshua of nazareth is was is and always will be the messiah i believe he was resurrected from the dead i believe he ascended into heaven and is sitting and waiting okay as the king to be of heaven and earth, all right? And I consider myself a born-again believer in Yeshua, all right? It doesn't change anything, right, in terms of that. But the idea of the Trinity, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. So there's an issue there, at least one, all right? And anyway, let me finish, I guess, here, and then hopefully that'll explain why I bring this up. So um, ancient Judaism didn't have any idea or concept called the Trinity, Okay, Messiah, essentially, the best way I can explain it, in my view, is that he is an extension of Hashem. And when he was on earth, he had no divinity, but he gave it up. And we'll look at a verse that talks about that in the book of Philippians. And he was essential to creation. He was at creation, but the Messiah was not, while he was on earth, king. And that's why he was able to be murdered, tortured, murdered, and had to be resurrected to become king. So going back briefly to the tabernacle, the mishkan, the presence of God, the shkinah, or the kavod, the glory, that is, those are all manifestations of the Lord on planet earth, right? I mean, it's there in the Torah. And these phrases haven't caused any Jews to abandon their faith in monotheism or Hashem himself as the one true God or disbelief in the Shema. Which, by the way, the very passage that says Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, comes at the end of the Torah, after, in Devarim chapter 6, after the Lord has presented himself as a cloud, as a fire, as a pillar of fire, as a presence above the keruvim, above the Ark of the Covenant, Okay, as uh, described in the Torah, as the Shekhinah, the presence of God, or the Kavod, the glory of God. Alright, so all these manifestations are extensions of God. Same thing with the Messiah. Alright, we just disagree on his identity between Judaism, traditional Judaism, traditional Jews, and Messianic believers in Yeshua. Now, I say Messianic, really it's just specifically believers in Yeshua. But all Jews are Messianic. Alright, well anyway, so I believe that the Messiah Yeshua was a projection and a spark of God. And we see in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 13. Okay, Philippians 2 verse 5 I believe is where I want to start. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself "...of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, therefore, or the stake, an execution tool, therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, And of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's that word glory again, kavod. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, your own Yeshua salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Now notice in verse thirteen, Paul takes this vocabulary back to God, God himself, or God the Father. Now Yeshua is the Son, the product of the father's distillation process down into a human form that did not have deity, as we see in the last passage, only while he was here on earth, and until he was resurrected did he lack that deity? I believe seemingly I pretend i don't I don't pretend to understand all of this. look, you can disagree with me. it doesn't really matter right now it's not a salvation issue. Right? What is a salvation issue is Romans 10 verses 8 through 10, and that's it. I mean, not the only scripture, but that summarizes the, the key to salvation. Uh, now, did Yeshua have control over physicality and supernatural abilities when he was alive prior to his resurrection? Yes, we know that it is true. Was he deity? Does it really matter? I mean, even if I disagree with you at this point in my walk, I don't know what difference it makes. And mainly because he is in heaven waiting to return for the marriage of the Messiah to Israel and the beginning of the day of the Lord and the Messianic age and the Olam Haba, the, day to, the age to come. Now, in case you don't have it in front of you, again, Romans and, and John 3.16 too, but Romans 10 verses 8 through 10. Let me find it real quick just so that um, it'll make it easier for you to hear it in case you're driving or not uh, able to look it up right now. Romans 10, 8 through 10 says, uh, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that Lord Yeshua, that your mouth, the Lord Yeshua, or the Lord is Yeshua, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, unto Yeshua. Alright, so, There you go. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I don't know exactly what he's quoting there. He says, as it is written. But that would be for another time. It's another reference to either another one of his letters or to the Tanakh. Alright, so getting back to John chapter 1. Okay, so to finish John 1, verses 1 through 5. He was with God, Bereshit, in the beginning. All things came to be through him, Yeshua the Messiah, and without Messiah, without him, nothing made had being. Now when it says all things, which by the way, the word for things in Hebrew is Devarim, All things came to be through him. Now, I've said this several times this year. In Hebrew, there is a direct object pointing word that is spelled Aleph-Tav. Aleph-Tav. And it's pronounced Et. Now, it doesn't translate in English because it doesn't exist in English. So we don't know it is there until you read it in the Hebrew. Now, I think this is God's reminder about him. Both God the Father and the Messiah being the creator of all tangible, definite things. He is, after all, the beginning and the end. And it's fascinating to me that the letters that create this word, et, are the first letter of the Aleph Bet and the last letter of the Aleph Bet. Aleph and Tav. So it is like a small reminder, like a pair of bookends, prior to every definite direct object word in Hebrew. Now the best example of this, by the way, so you can hear it, and read it even, and see what I'm talking about is from Genesis chapter one. Bereshit bara Elohim et Aleph Tav In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See how it doesn't appear in English, but it is there in Hebrew. There's also a verse in Colossians that says something very similar and I think it quoted it in the last month or so, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. And I can read that for you again. Okay, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things exist. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the congregation, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Now what's interesting is, there's a verse, very popular verse, um, that says, Yeshua is the Alpha and the Omega. Well, if you write that in Hebrew, it becomes the Aleph and the Tav. Let me find that verse for you. Okay, so check this out. This is from a, an article on gotquestions.org. Um what does it mean that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega? So Yeshua proclaimed himself to be the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. And Revelation chapter 22 verse 13. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Among the Jewish rabbis it was common to use the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet to denote the whole of anything from beginning to end. Yeshua as the beginning and end of all things is a reference to no one but the true, the one true God. This statement of eternality could apply only to Hashem. It is seen especially in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, where Yeshua proclaims that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. One of the meanings of Yeshua being Alpha and Omega is He was at the beginning of all things and will be at the close. It is equivalent to saying He always existed and always will exist. It was Messiah who brought about the creation with Hashem. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And that's in John chapter 1 verse 3. Which we either just read or we're about to read. And his second coming will be the beginning of the end of creation as we know it. From 2 Peter 3 chapter 10. As God poured into a human form. He has no beginning nor will he have any end with respect to time being from everlasting to everlasting. And a second meaning of Yeshua as the Aleph and the Tav is the phrase identifies him as the God of the Tanakh. Isaiah ascribes this aspect of Yeshua's nature as part of God in several places. I the Lord am the first and with the last I am he. Chapter 41 verse 4. I am the first and I am the last and besides me there is no God. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6. I am he, I am the first I also am the last. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 12. These are clear indications of the eternal nature of God and his Messiah. And Messiah as the Aleph and Tav is the first and the last. he's also the fit author and finisher of our faith. See Hebrews chapter twelve verse two. He's the fulfilling of the Torah, Matthew five, seventeen through twenty, and he's the beginning subject matter of the gospel, um, that by faith we are saved, not by works. See Ephesians two verses eight through nine. Now he is found in the first verse of Genesis, which I just read, and in the last verse of Revelation. So he is truly the first and the last from the justification before God to the final sanctification of his people. So pretty interesting article. I didn't use all of the vocabulary they use because it is um, connected to this idea of the Trinity and I didn't agree with some of the things that they said, but it had a lot of very interesting ideas and connections to ancient Jewish thought and understanding. Alright, so, to finish John 1, verse 3, part B, in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. This is straight out of John 1, first five verses. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. I kind of look, okay, now I'm going to give you my take on this, I kind of, look at a light bulb as the Messiah and the light inside uh, it's intangible but I can see it and it's the divine light that is Hashem that we cannot see unless we look to the Messiah and we have to look at the bulb which contains the light to see the light and use the light and then we look at the Messiah and then ultimately one day we will see and live uh, with the Messiah on planet Earth after Earth is returned to the Gani Den original condition and a rehabilitated state of being, like a giant remodel, or a reboot. Okay, so thanks for your patience on that segue, but I thought it was important. Now in the Haftarah, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, we had the word of the Lord show up, but then introduces itself to him, Eliyahu, as only Hine Adonai, spelled yod heh there, so it says, Hine Adonai, Over, which translates, and the Lord, uh, let me find the English for you there. Haftara. Ah, that's not it. All right, one moment. Let me find that English translation for you. So this is how it says it Uh, in, let's see, this is 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, verse 11, actually. So it says, All right, so in English he says, And he said, Go out and stand. This is the Lord talking to Eliahu, and he said, "Go out and stand in the mountain before the Lord." Talking about himself in the third person, which is kind of strange. Um, before the Lord, behold, he And it says, "Vehine Adonai Yodevevah, And the behold, the Lord crossed or crosses present tense, Varuach and spirit uh, large, a great. But translated, a great and strong wind. But it could also be a great and strong spirit, ruach the vechazak, a strong and great or large spirit. All right. So back to my own personal summary and commentary. So I see this as the Lord Himself and His Spirit, which surrounds Him like His talit, which is why I believe Eliyahu wraps Himself. In an aderet, okay, an aderet is a cloak or mantle, and it says that that in verse thirteen, he kishma Eliahu, Vayelet. which is where we get um, the word. Let's see, lahit. No, that's different. Sorry, Vayelet. wrapped panav his face, baadarto in his. Cloak or mantle. Alright, so it's called an adaret in Hebrew, and I think he wrapped himself in his cloak or mantle uh, because I think it's very sensible to think he saw God doing it, wrapping God himself in his spirit, in his own spirit. So he just imitated the Lord's appearance. Now, just my opinion. Then we see Hashem approving of Eliyahu's behavior and actions against the pagan cult, and he has this dialogue with him. And the sages, or as they are properly called in Hebrew, Chazal, see a similarity between Pinchas and Eliyahu. Now they say in Targum Yonatan, Exodus 6.18, that Pinchas is Eliyahu the high priest who will be sent to gather the exiles of Israel at the end of days. Now, I wonder if it will be easier for the Jews and the people of Israel from other tribes, in addition to Judah, to recognize Eliyahu much easier than Yeshua. Since there are so many machlokot, so many controversies over Yeshua and his identity, and so much outright rejection by most of Israel and the Jewish people of Yeshua as the Messiah, who was the one who was resurrected from the dead and who became uh, you know, who, who resurrected into a spirit, in a, into a, a supernatural physical body, and was acknowledged as back in the first century, he was acknowledged by one in seven. And now I think that would be really difficult to say one in seven Jews believes that Yeshua is the Messiah. But maybe that's why Hashem needs Eliyahu, so he can bring the exiles. Although originally Moshe was pictured as the friend of the bride and Eliyahu is said to be the friend of the groom who heralds the messiah's coming um, maybe what will happen is that as the messiah's herald and announcer that Eliyahu will be a catalyst since he is such a recognizable character and an iconic personality who is said to still come to every Pesach seder and every milah every circumcision Then with Eliyahu leading the way, the identity and confirmation and bona fides of the Messiah will be simple and easily accepted. Okay, so finally in this vein, Pinchas and his intense zeal will see fame and notoriety in the world to come. The olam haba in the days of the Messiah. Now there is another opinion of the sages that doesn't like this religious zeal. In Psalm 106, verse 30, we see Pinchas referred to, and there's a word here that is one letter off, missing the letter Tav, and and verses 30 through 31 of Psalm 106 say, Pinchas stood up and executed justice, and the plague was stopped. It was accounted for him as merit from generation to generation to eternity. It says in Hebrew, V'ya'omod Pinchas, vai falel, va vate va vate va all right so the word i was talking about where the tab is missing and it would change it um, to significant another significant word is vaifalel so he says he executed justice all right um, so Va'yit palel would mean he got up and prayed, but va'yafel means executed justice. All right, the second verse: Ova lo dav ad olam. He has merit for generation to generation, forever. Now, the Midrash thinks that Eliyahu failed to help the people repent, and we're back to Eliyahu now, and sees God attempting to calm Eliyahu's intense passion and jealousy for the ways of Hashem, okay, that led Eliyahu to kill all the worshippers of Baal. Okay, so that is the Haftarah that we would read normally should Parashat Pinchas fall before Shiva Sar Batamuz, 17 to Tammuz, but this week. In the year 5783 or 2023, we actually read the first Haftarah of admonition since Shiva Sava is this Thursday. Now, just to be clear, this Haftarah is not overtly connected to the Parashah in any way, but we may find something in it, or you may, because the Spirit of God is in the cycles and the seasons, of course, in the Torah and Haftarah. Now, this Shah was choos- chosen as a group of three during three weeks of admonition for the period between the 17th of Tammuz to Tisha B'Av. For three Shabbats prior to the anniversary of the destruction of both temples, these three pagan passages passages serve as warnings to Israel of the sins that ended up being the reason for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the 17th of Tammuz was an important day, and five calamities befell Israel on this day, many years apart from each other. Now, the first of these was the smashing of the tablets by Moshe Rabenu. It was also the day that the Babylonians first breached the walls of Jerusalem in the first Temple era. Now, the other three incidents of infamy on the 17th of Tammuz are as follows. Okay, so I'll read them in order. Number one, Moshe broke the tablets when he saw the people of Israel worshiping the Egel Zahav, golden calf. Number two, during the Babylonian siege of Yerushalayim, the Jews were forced to cease offering the daily sacrifices, offering, sorry, offering the daily offerings due to the lack of sheep. Uh, Number three, Apostamos burned the holy Torah, and there's a footnote here. Um, historians have long debated when this occurred. Some maintain that Apostomos, which means big mouth in Greek, I think, was a general during the Roman occupation of Israel, while others contend that he lived years earlier and was an officer during the Greek reign over the Holy Land. Uh, but on uh, Chabad.org you can find a full explanation of who was apostamos and who burned a Torah scroll. Uh, on this same day, um, uh, Shrouded in controversy say also Apostomos uh, or King Manasseh of Judah placed an idol in the Holy Temple. And number five, the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans in 69 Common Era after a lengthy siege. Now three weeks later after the Jews put up a valiant struggle, the Romans destroyed the second Holy Temple on the 9th of Av and the Jerusalem Talmud maintains that this is also the date when the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem on their way to destroying the first holy temple. All right. So, rabbinic writings talk about these three weeks, as I said earlier, as a specific period called Ben HaMetzarim. This is based on Lamentations chapter 1, verse 3. The time between the fast days, both referred to by Zechariah chapter 8, by the way, is also called. The telata de puranuta in Aramaic, in Aramaic, three weeks of admonition due the, to the theme of the these haftarah portions chosen to match the season for this week and the following two weeks. Now let me back up. I said Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 8. What I was referring to there is there are four fast days. It says the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth. That is specifically referring to, in my opinion... And many other people's opinions, uh, much smarter than me, to these two fast days that we've been talking about, Tammuz 17 and Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av. The other two fast days are 10th uh, of Tevet and Som Gedalia. So the 10th of Tevet uh, falls in the winter, and the 3rd of Tishri, the anniversary of the murder of the. Uh, Judean governor in the book of Ezra or Nehemiah is a fast day right after Rosh Hashanah ends. So that being said, um, this period in Aramaic is called Telata de Puranuta, uh, which is where we get the phrase, the three weeks of admonition due to the theme of these Haftarah portions in Jeremiah, starting with this week. Now, after this three weeks, we enter into the seven weeks of consolation in Aramaic called Shivata Denechamata. And the total of 10 weekly Haftarah readings. Uh, oh, by the way, that means um, the seven weeks of consolation. Um, literally, Shivata Denechamata. Uh, the total of 10 weekly Haftarah readings from 17 the Tammuz all the way to Elul brings us to the high holidays of the new year. Um, or into liu, liu, into Elul all the way to right up until Rosh Hashanah. So essentially a major liturgical wave begins and takes us in a different direction leading to the new year. So it is truly a change of season as far as the haftarah goes and we are in the home stretch with the new year a bit of ways away, but less than three months. The choice to use Yirmiyahu is likely due to the Jewish tradition that Yirmiyahu was also the writer of Lamentations, which is said at Tisha B'Av. Lamentations, or in Hebrew, Echa, is the book that is chanted and read with a unique trope or cantillation on Tisha B'Av, both in the evening leading into it and the next morning at the Shachrit service. Well, that concludes this episode. I hope you have been edified and blessed by the word of Hashem in some way. Uh, Let me check one last thing, because I was going to look for the connection to uh, Pinchas and Jeremiah which I think would be really fascinating so I'll do a special corollary here so I want to highlight an article that was written by Chabad called a lesson from Jeremiah and Pinchas but just want to highlight uh, one paragraph here um, that connects Pinchas and Jeremiah so Pinchas who stars in both portions of Pinchas and Matot which is next week was like jeremiah right they both came from a place of darkness so jeremiah was the great great grandson of rahab uh, according to jewish tradition and rahab was the reformed baal 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 tshuva right the repentant gentile who uh, we highlighted in the um, haftarah portion uh, just a week or two ago and that was from Joshua chapter 2. So, uh, Jeremiah, you know, came from a uh, kind of, you know, dark, less, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, less uh, uh, attractive family tree, shall we say, Um, but uh, Pinchas also, it says, uh, let's see, where is it here? Okay, so Pinchas uh, was taunted because of his family as his mother was Yitro's daughter. So he came to the forefront in a dark time. Just like Jeremiah was in the middle of the destruction of the temple, his time, he actually got carried away to Egypt and also eventually to Babylon. But his actions, Pinchas' actions, caused Israel to repent and change. So this kind of change is real and everlasting. Therefore, Pinchas' reward was an eternal one; that he and all his descendants would be Koanim. Now, Ben Hametzarim is a time certainly not of light. It's symbolic of the exile of the Galut or the Gola, and Hashem is telling us how to conduct ourselves in times of darkness and how we can still evoke change in the world and bring light. Into our time. Uh, even though it seems dark. Now. It says in Jeremiah. Chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the belly. I knew you. So don't say I am a youth. Which is what Jeremiah says. And without the chutzpah. Or the strength to withstand the world's negativity. You can do it. Okay so in Jeremiah chapter 1. it says, don't be afraid for I am with you. So this is the kind of zeal that both Pinchas and Eliyahu in the passage we're not reading had as well as Jeremiah. So uh, the last section here is really beautiful. It says, God wants us to affect the physical world and our own bodies to serve him well. One who says, let me stay in my cocoon of light of Torah and spirituality and not deal with the physical is making a mistake. It is the effect on the physical world and our physical nature that God wants most. And it is why God wants to put us in a physical world, to develop the world, to be a dwelling place for his presence, full of vessels of light, and to be the hands and feet for mitzvot on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. I added that part, which is the everlasting reward. We will all yearn, and I quote here, which is the everlasting reward we all yearn for and will be experienced with the coming of Mashiach. So that concludes this episode, friends. I hope you've been edified and blessed by the word of Hashem in some way. We always invite you to invite Yeshua into your life with your acceptance of him as the way, the truth, and the life. John 14 verses 5 and 6 show Thomas asking Yeshua the following, he says, uh, Thomas said to Yeshua, Lord, we do not know where you are going or how can we know and how can we know the way? Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, shalom, have a blessed day. Bezrat Hashem, we'll meet again next week for a riveting look at the second of three weeks of admonition. And if you're fasting on Tammuz 17, may it be a meaningful fast. Shalom.